The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. I read a book recently by a guy named Gavin Ortland. The book's titled, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. And he opens the book with these paragraphs. Have it on the screen. Listen to this. Suppose Hamlet is searching for Shakespeare. He cannot find him in the way that he might find other characters in the play, like Ophelia or Claudius. So where should he look? Hamlet's knowledge of Shakespeare will be different than anything else in his life. This is brilliant. He says, on the one hand, finding Shakespeare will be very difficult. Shakespeare is very far removed. Hamlet has never encountered him. On the other hand, the knowledge of Shakespeare might also prove unavoidable. For in a deeper sense, Shakespeare is very close. Hamlet has never done anything but encounter him. As Hamlet's creator, Shakespeare is at once beyond his every device and inside his every thought. He continues, God is something like Shakespeare is to Hamlet. He is both infinitely close and infinitely far. He is infinitely close because reality itself abides within him. Each breath we breathe is a gift from him. As Augustine put it, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. But he is infinitely far because he is qualitatively different from anything we have ever known. He surpasses us constantly at every level. For all eternity, we can search him out and still always have infinitely more to discover. Isn't that so good? The Christian story teaches exactly this, that God is the supreme being, capital supreme, capital being, meaning that God is the ground or the basis of all existence. I mean, think about what Ortland has said here, that God's relationship to us is the same as, as Shakespeare's relationship to Hamlet or Mark Twain to Tom Sawyer or J.K. Rowling to Harry Potter, if that's for your speed. God's, God's is the author of reality. And so he has this brilliant observation that it means that God is infinitely close on the one hand, yet he is infinitely far away from us, infinitely removed on the other. His order of existence far exceeds our own. But that's not even the craziest thing that Christians say. The wildest part of our faith is that the Christian story makes this really remarkable claim that unlike Shakespeare, God has actually written himself into the narrative. God has become a character who unveils the author and the person of Jesus. And it gets even crazier. We say a lot of wild stuff, and this may be the most audacious, controversial claim that we have to make. That we actually alone possess the one true story of the whole world. That Christians are in possession of the one true story of the whole world. And that all other stories are at best pale imitations or offshoots or derivatives or prequels to the one true story, which is the story of God and Christ. We recognize that's a bold claim, but what we say is that we did it found us. We are told this story by God himself who writes himself into the story entering our reality by the Son and by the Spirit, speaking to us by the Son and through his word. Now, we've been studying the book of Acts for several months, as, as Jim just read from, and it's the story of the earliest Christians and the earliest missionaries confronting the nations with the one true story of the world, saying your stories, your beliefs, your notions of God are incomplete, but this is reality. 
Jesus is the completion and end game of all of it. Jesus is the center of the one true story of the whole world. Now, our passage today, Paul goes into the intellectual center of the world, not just in Paul's time, but we're talking about the intellectual city, uh, center of, of human history, the city that produced Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, who is definitely more famous than Britney Spears, as Aaron observed for us last week. This is the city of art and literature, and some of the most influential ideas in human history came out of this city, a city whose influence can still be seen today, even in things like architecture, like every bank is styled after the architecture we get from Athens. Paul, the apostle, he arrives at the intellectual center of history, and he brings the true story of the whole world to bear. And we're going to see four things. Paul's motive, Paul's mission, Paul's message, and Paul's reception. And we'll just pretend that started with an M, that last one. Let's look again at verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So previously, uh, we've, been, we've been going through Paul's second missionary journey. It feels a bit like uh, episodes of The Mandalorian where he kind of goes from here and he goes to there and he's got these little missions and adventures. It kind of reads like Paul's adventure of the week. Well, the adventure of the week this week lands Paul in the city of Athens. We'll have a map up on the screen that can help us kind of locate where he is. So previously in this missionary journey, Paul was, he left Jerusalem and he had gone about spreading the gospel. Do we have the map available? Right there, let's see, there it is. He leaves from the city of Jerusalem, which is the big circle in the bottom right corner. He makes his way north, and then he begins making his way west. You see there, he's, he's gone up through Philippi. The, the gospel takes root for the first time in Europe as they get to Philippi. We saw the captives were set free and evils put in his place until they ultimately get run off. Then after that, Paul and his company moves into Thessalonica, where they're accused of turning the world upside down, which is just fantastic uh, and exactly right. And the result is they get run off from there and they move on to Berea, which to be clear is a different Berea than the one we're familiar with. They're there in the Berean synagogues and they're unlike those in the Thessalonian synagogues that they're receptive to the gospel. But the shadow movement that's following Paul, Timothy, and Silas eventually catches up to them and they, they run them off from Berea as well. And so in a move to keep Paul safe, Timothy and Silas ship Paul off, and Paul makes his way as far down south as the city of Athens and what is Greece. Paul arrives almost by happenstance in the legendary city of Athens. Now, what do you think of when you hear Athens? If you're a college football fan, you think of Georgia. But once again, that's a different Athens. And don't, Dylan, cut that out. We don't need any of that right now. It's hard to overstate the importance of the city of Athens. I mean, it was said that Athens had more gods than men in the city. It was called the University of the World. I mean, Athens is the birthplace, the little birthplace of democracy, an incredibly important city. And so Paul happens to arrive in Athens. And as he's waiting on Timothy and Silas before moving on to the next city, notice what happens. It's almost like he's just hanging out at the bus stop, kind of waiting on these guys to arrive, and he's looking around, and it says that his spirit is provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. There's two things to note here. When it says that the city is full of idols, one commentator pointed out that it's probably better to translate this phrase, full of idols, to under idols. He saw that the city was under idols. He sees a city being oppressed 
being burdened, being sat upon by idols, by evil, which has a certain effect, right? I, I, was, I was getting coffee with uh, Marshall Pierce just a couple of weeks ago, and Marshall shared about, he, he served for many years uh, in the Middle East with the International Mission Board, and he talked about how they would go to the mall, and they would look around, and they would just see thousands and thousands of people they knew did not know Jesus, and it was just a burden. It just provoked him, and it saddened and grieved Marshall to see that these folks did not know Jesus. Or honestly, June in the United States, we look around and it affects us because we observe a culture that is being oppressed by idols. So the result is we're, we're stirred by this. It says that Paul's spirit in this passage is provoked. This actually happens to be the same word, the same Greek word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for God's response to the idolatry of his people. Right, so God is provoked when he sees his people worshiping false gods. And so this idea of Paul being provoked, it's, it's akin to God's jealousy for God's own namesake. Right, so it's right to assume that Paul's emotions here aren't just grief or sadness for the city, which it most certainly was. It's jealousy for the glory of Jesus. He sees a city that is giving their homage and their glory and their worship to someone other than Jesus, and it provokes Paul. It provokes him. He looks around and he's jealous for the glory of Jesus because he knows what you and I know about Jesus, of Jesus' goodness and his power and Jesus' grace to us. And he's like, ah, these people need to worship Christ. Christ deserves the devotion and worship that they're giving to idols. These beautiful buildings, this picturesque, amazing city. Never been to Greece, but the pictures are pretty unreal. And the, the food is also pretty unreal. Paul sees all of this, and he's like, man, Christ is the one who deserves the honor. So Paul's motive is this, the glory of Jesus. Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. And how does it motivate and animate Paul when his spirit is provoked? Does it create in him disdain? Does he scoff? Does he hate? Does he raise the drawbridge and lob grenades to the other side? No, Paul's response to this provocation is mission. I mean, just think about this and think about our situation. How do we respond when we see our neighbors and family and culture under idols? Are we provoked? Are we stirred towards mission by the glory of Jesus? John Stott, a commentator, in his, his commentary on Acts said this. This inward pain and horror which moved Paul to share the good news with idolaters at Athens, should similarly move us. He goes on to say it's important to know why we do things, especially today. Uh, when we struggle with notions of conversion and we, the, the exclusivity of Jesus feels difficult, he asks, what is our motivation for evangelism? Is it obedience to the Great Commission? Yes. Is it compassion? Yes. He says, the highest incentive of all is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. God has promoted Jesus to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. Whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. Our motive should be the glory of Jesus. And when we look out and we rightfully are disturbed by the things that we see, it is passion for Jesus' name that drives us. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says that missions exist because worship doesn't. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, we want to see Christ worshiped with every tongue and every song and every, every uh, dialect and every, every, every way that we can dream of seeing Jesus getting honor and glory. We are about that. And so that motivates our mission. We believe that we have found a good thing in Jesus. We have found the best thing in Jesus. And what happens when you find a restaurant that you particularly enjoy? What is the natural human response? I got I to gotta text somebody about this. I gotta tell, Jared, I got to tell you about this restaurant that I found. I have to tell you. It's the human impulse. And, and the reality is, is that we have found Jesus and we have tasted and seen that he is good. And the human impulse is to share that good news, to see Jesus worshiped and adored with all the zeal and ferocity and passion that is given to other lesser false gods. Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. And, and I love this picture. I mean, Paul just happens to be in the city. He's disturbed by what he sees. He's like, I got to do something about this. And so verse 17, it says that he goes first to the synagogue. Now, this is Paul's practice that we see him do over and over. He goes to those folks with a, a biblical background, goes to Jews, his kin. He goes to tell them that the fulfillment of their stories has come. It is the Lord Jesus. But that's not the only place that we're told Paul goes. Where else does he go? Verse 17, he goes to the marketplace. Now, again, Athens is the city of wisdom, and the practice here was to go into the marketplace where you could publicly discuss ideas and exchange ideas, verse 21, and it's a little bit of a dig, but it, but it talks about how they would exchange these ideas openly and freely, and they loved novelty. They, they loved hearing new stuff. And so Paul goes intentionally to those with no biblical background. In fact, those who had fundamentally different worldviews and religious notions, he goes to the marketplace to share the gospel with them. So secondly, Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. Paul's mission is movement towards those that are under idols. Movement towards those that are under idols. He models for us both a movement towards the biblically literate types, we might say, but especially those who are completely illiterate, completely ignorant to the things of the scriptures with little or no knowledge of the Bible. That's also should be true of us, that, that, that we have a similar movement towards people who don't know the stories of the scriptures. Maybe they've heard of Jesus. Maybe they know a few of the stories. They, they know that there's a whale and there's Jonah, and maybe they've heard of Noah and they got the ark. Maybe they know some of those things, but they don't know the full and complete story of the gospel, notions of holiness, sin, or forgiveness. Paul models movement towards those folks. And then in verse 17, it says he goes to reason with those who happen to be there. With those who happen to be there. I remember when we were, we were first planting uh, Ridgewood Church. This was, this was at, at a, an exercise at a, a church planting workshop, workshop where we were given this writing prompt. We had to write and explain the kind of person that we wanted to see make up the church of your station then. Who is this church for? You know, who, who is the... Who is the target audience for this church plant? And I remember the qualities that I put down were breathing and an attached head and pulse. Those were, the, those were the ideal kind of people. I was told to rework my answer, but I guess I get what they were trying to, to go for there. But, but I just love that Paul was willing to move towards whoever crossed his path. It's like whoever happened to be there, Paul was like, I got something to tell you. I got the true story of the whole world burning a hole in my pocket. Would you like me to share with you? A kind of indiscriminate reasoning with whoever had a pulse. And so Paul's mission is movement towards those who are under idols because he wants to see Jesus magnified. 
he models, I think, a kind of courage that we should really reflect on. I mean, one thing I love about this is we are talking about the intellectual center of human history. He's in the city of wisdom, the city of ideas, and Paul has no intimidation about this. I think for many of us, we can often kind of be intimidated by the intellectual world. I mean, the the kind of narrative that's out there is that Christians are these silly, irrational, religion is for the unintelligent or the uncultured, you know, that's sort of the the, the story that's out there about us. And it kind of nags at us in the back of our heads. But man, Paul was willing to go to bat with the big dogs. He believed that the Christian story stood up powerfully against all rival narratives, And I believe that that's the case today. Like, we don't need to be afraid of the intellect or afraid of the intellectual type because the Christian story can stand its ground. So Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. Paul's mission is movement towards those who are under idols. Let's look at verse 18. Now, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Right, so uh, the book of Acts, it, it mentions two schools of Greek philosophy here. First were the Epicureans. They were sort of like deists. In other words, they, they believed that God was a clockmaker God. So he kind of wound up the universe and he just lets it run and he's backed off and he's been uninvolved ever since. So their philosophy, you know, believing that God set the universe up and kind of lets it be, their philosophy is just kind of enjoy the ride. Like, whatever pleasures you want to, you know, avail yourself of, man, go for it. God isn't all that concerned about our behavior. Then you have the Stoics, who were pantheists. They believe that God suffuses everything, and everything suffuses God. There's a oneness with God and the universe, and through reason, through reflection, they could tap into that oneness and kind of participate in the divine oneness. That'll be important in a second. Verse 18, it says that some called Paul a babbler. That's literally a seed sower. It's an image of someone who is kind of tossing seed indiscriminately, who's, who's unserious, who dabbles, who's unserious about ideas, a, a dilettante. Verse 18, it says that others called Paul a preacher of foreign divinities, which, which I love because the, the idea of the resurrection was so bizarre to them that they thought that they misheard Paul when he said resurrection. They thought Paul was referring to a deity whose name was resurrection. Verse 19 And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So verse 19 there, Paul's very strange to them, which is a feature of our faith, by the way, not a bug. Our weirdness is a a piece. It's an important piece, an important to preserve piece of our faith, of our belief. Paul is strange to them, and so they take him to the Areopagus. This is kind of in keeping with the pattern we've seen again and again, and we'll continue to see in Acts, that these apostles appear before local authorities making their case about Jesus as the true king. The Areopagus was a court that would resolve civil or ceremonial disputes and would sometimes even adjudicate in matters of faith. Uh, The KJV translates the word Areopagus, Mars Hill. Areopagus just means the, the hill of Ares. Paul's strange teaching on the resurrection is at the, at the very least interesting, and it's certainly causing a stir. And so they bring him before the Areopagus, seeing that, you know, hoping that the Areopagus could clear up some things about what this guy is teaching. 
Paul, we wish to know what new strange things you're presenting. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, remember Paul's motivation is the glory of Jesus. He is provoked by their idolatry. But what does Paul do here in this passage? He doesn't go in guns ablaze. He doesn't go in calling out the idolatry yet. He'll get there, but not yet. He's disturbed by their worship, but that's not his starting point. His starting point with them is actually affirmation. Finding a common ground from which to build with these guys. He acknowledges their altar to an unknown God that he observed in the city. Now, this is kind of a brilliant move. In, in Roman culture, when they would conquer a territory, they would often assimilate tribal deities into the Roman pantheon. It's like, you got a God, you got a God. We all have those gods too. Come on, man, come on. Welcome to the party, pal, kind of thing. They would assimilate these gods, and it was kind of a base-covering move. But just in case we missed one, we're going to have an altar to an unknown god. So Paul says, I see all your gods. I see your, your kind of worshiping impulse. And I see you acknowledge that there's one god that you know, but you don't know. That's the door, Paul says, that I'm going to use to get my foot in, share the gospel. Watch this, verse 23 again. What therefore you worship is unknown. I'm here to fill in those gaps. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. My wife texted me a couple of days ago. Um, she had all four kids in the car. Uh, they're were, they were driving back from Simpsonville. And Ruthie is our third child. She's four years old. She's the only girl standing her ground. And um, all the boys were asleep in the car. And so Ruthie, who's usually talked over and who's usually shouted down, had, had her chance. And Emily texted me that Ruthie started peppering her. She was having some kind of existential crisis. Started peppering her with all of these questions that have kind of maybe built up over the last couple of weeks. My favorite was this. Did God make himself? Not himself. Figuring out the pronouns thing. Did God make himself? Did God make himself? Then he says, did God look around and see nothing and just decide to create something? She asked, can we see God? Can we see Jesus? She then asked, will I die one day and will I be able to see Jesus? How, how can I see Jesus one day? Emily said, you need to believe in Jesus like Jude. Because Jude, our oldest son, recently became a believer and was baptized. And then Ruthie said, do I need to be dipped like Jude one day? Which is, that's perfect. That's perfect. We're going to call it that from now on. We're having a dipping here in a couple of weeks. And then she asked, this is, gosh, this, this actually is my favorite. She asked, Jude had woken up at this point. She asked Jude, how do you believe in God? You know, how do you become a Christian? And, she, and Jude responded, you confess your sins. And, and uh, Emily said that, Ruthie said, but how do you do that? <laughs> which, is, which is so great, right? But the question, the question that she started this with, I mean, that's a challenging question. Did God make himself? Did God make himself? Something, I mean, and this is what Christians have always taught is that something or someone has to be the ground zero of existence. You cannot have an infinite regress of causes. Something had to start everything, right? And what Paul says in verse 24 is that God is over all and that he made everything that exists. He is one God. He is supreme. He is Lord of all. 
He's, there's not a, a God of the sea and a God of the sun and a God of the moon and a God of war. There's not a God of this nation and that nation and this nation. There's not tribal deities. God is the one God who's behind everything. Everything has a beginning and God is the one who started it. And God does not dwell in temples or receive anything from human hands as if he had need, as if God was in lack of something. As if, our, as if God, like these Greek gods, were moody and needy and dependent on our worship for existence. God can't receive anything as he is the source of everything. God is the ground of being. That's what Paul's saying here. Now let's, just for a second, let's spin back to that author analogy that we used a few moments ago. Imagine you're reading Harry Potter, let's say, because y'all like Harry Potter, so we're going to go with that. And I couldn't, I, I don't even, Shakespeare, I think Lion King is based off of Hamlet, but that's about my knowledge of Shakespeare. Now, let's, let's say we were making a list of all of the characters in, Lord, in uh, Harry Potter. You got Harry, you got Hermione, you got Ron, there's Dumbledore, there's Cedric Diggory, you got Hagrid, a lot of characters. But let's say in making our list of characters, we forgot one character. Let's say Percy Weasley. We forgot to list Percy Weasley. And we accidentally added a character who's not in the story, Barney Fife, let's say. Now, how would we go about clearing up that misconception? Well, we'd go and we'd observe all of the characters that are present, and we'd conclude, okay, Barney Fife is not in the story, and Percy Weasley is indeed in the story. That's what we would do. Now, what if somebody said, is J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by that question, right? Like, in one sense, she's obviously not in the book, at least in the same way that Percy and Hagrid are, right? But in another way, she's kind of all over the book and within the book and outside and prior to the book, right? We could say that J.K. Rowling is the ground of their being. She's the one through whom each character exists. We could even say that she is the one in whom they live and move and have their being, right? She gives life and breath to each of them. And the same idea is present here for us. Paul is communicating that God is fundamental. He is fundamentally fundamental. You get that? He is the base of everything. And that's kind of why it's so difficult to answer the question, does God exist? Because on the one hand, you can't prove that God exists in the same way that, that Harry Potter could prove J.K. Rowling exists. But on the other hand, it couldn't be more obvious that God exists, right? God is a necessary being who is behind and before everything. He's the author of all that exists. He gives to all life and breath and everything, Paul says. He alone is necessary. You and I are contingent. We're, we're beings that hang on God's existence, and we need God, not the other way around. He is completely distinct from the gods of the myths, and he's completely different than the way that the Epicureans and the Stoics would have conceived of God. God is at the same time both completely and unimaginably other and distant in every way, and listen, God is more intimate than our last breath. Verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God is the source of all trees, flowers, frogs, nations, and people. God made every nation from one man. We are all of the same stuff as each other, black, white, Jew, Greek, 
all of us have our origins in Adam. And all humans bear the same calling. Here Paul echoes the Genesis account, the creation of humanity. We're called to exercise dominion. Verse 26, it's probably best read as God giving mankind places and gardens to rule over as his image bearers. We're called to exercise dominion over the world. And we're also called to live in relationship to God. We were made to seek, know, and find God, though it's clouded by sin. Then in verse 28, Paul actually solidifies this point in a kind kind of dicey, surprising way by quoting pagan Greek poets. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. I mean, what's, what's so different about this sermon from other sermons and acts is that Paul doesn't quote scripture. Why is that? Why, why doesn't Paul appeal to the story of Israel like he does in other sections of the book? Well, the answer is they would have been completely clueless about the story of Israel. Paul would have said, you remember when King David, and they would have been like, no, we don't. We don't know who King David is, right? And so Paul has to use alternative methods of persuasion. Bible references would have fallen on deaf ears, but also because of Paul's big vision of God, he recognizes that any truth that he finds out there, even if it's truth coming from the away team, belongs to the home team. So, so even the truth that the poets, the pagan poets have stumbled upon is God's truth. That's mine. That belongs to God who is supreme over all things. Even your poets recognize the truth, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have brought each of us into existence. That's, of course, not to say that these pagan poets were right. They obviously got a lot of things wrong. But on this, Paul sees an angle way in, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which, which, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, because we're God's offspring, we are made for life and relationship to him. So don't reduce God to statues made of silver or stone or gold. I mean, you are very impressive, How much more impressive is the God who invented and dreamed and created you? So why worship rocks? We are made in his image, not the other way around. We don't worship a God that we imagined or that we put together, Paul says. He says that God was patient with previous generations. He overlooked their idolatry, not in the sense of sweeping their sin under the rug, but in the sense of delaying his judgment and patience. And and now he commands all people to repent and turn to Jesus Because one day, Jesus will bring this story to its conclusion, and he will set everything right. He will judge all evil and put an end to all suffering and wrongdoing, and that includes judgment on those who reject him. Repent and believe the gospel, Paul says. Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. His mission is movement towards those under idol, and his message is the true story of the whole world. This is the true story of the whole world. God made everything. God made all men and all women to know and enjoy him. But we've sinned and we have made a mess of his good world. So God has sent Jesus to set things right, to restore all that is broken. So repent, turn to Jesus for forgiveness because Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. I wonder if you're here this morning and you wrestle with the idea of the existence of God. Maybe specifically you wrestle with his knowability. You kind of feel that tension of knowing Shakespeare. What would Paul say to that? 
Well, Paul would say that God has made himself known in Jesus. Of this, Paul says, God has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. It's so interesting to me. I mean, with this altar to the unknown God, I think it's this, I think it says something about the reality of the human heart that each of us kind of have this itch that we all try to scratch. I think this is true of all humanity, that we are incurably religious. In some ways, we all possess this nagging awareness of an unknown God that we know, but we don't know. And Paul says the way that we can have assurance about this God and what he's done, he says the true story of the whole world hinges on this. Jesus isn't dead. If Jesus is alive, Paul says, everything is different for us. I mean, it really is incredible. I mean, for all of this lofty dealing and the metaphysical realm and working through the nature of God, kind of living in the land of ideas, Paul lands the plane here. He says, if you want to know what I'm saying is true, know this, that 20 years ago, 800 miles east of here, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Therefore, God is indeed the one God over all peoples behind all things, and he has raised Jesus to bring all things to their glorious conclusion. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then the true story of the whole world is it. It is true. If Jesus is alive, he has been installed as king and judge of the world, and we must turn to him. The way the true story of the whole world intersects with each of us is it's a recognition that not on the basis of anything I could do, but only on the basis of surrender are we forgiven, completely absolved of all of our sin. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we can know and enjoy him as we were created to do. The glorious goodness of King Jesus is that he's a king who was broken for his people. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He dies so that we would not be judged, so that you can be pardoned, friend. The only other alternative is to stand before him on your own merit, deserving only death. So Paul's motive is the glory of Jesus. His mission is movement towards those under idols. His message is the true story of the whole world. Then we'll see his reception, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul's reception, it's mixed. Some give him a red light. They mock. They, they, like you and I know, they say, people don't just rise from the dead. I mean, Greeks especially thought that the physical bodies were icky, right? So the, the notion of God being in a bod is weird. Red light, they're not interested. Some give them a yellow light. They say, tell us more, Paul. We wanna hear more about this. Maybe it struck a nerve. It was compelling. It, man, the, the notion of God being both bigger and smaller than the Epicurean and Stoic thoughts of God. They said, let's hear more about this. And then some give them a green light. They say, I believe. They join Paul and follow along with him. Named here are two folks, one of them actually being a part of the Areopagus. We see how the gospel has taken root. Now this morning, speaking to the Christians, I just want to ask you this. Are you motivated by the same things that motivates Paul? Does the glory of Jesus so captivate you that it stirs jealousy for his name within you when you see folks under idols? 
Would you have the courage to ask God to disturb you for his namesake? I mean, does the glory of the gospel stir you to mission? We have found a good thing, the best thing in Jesus. Does that compel you to share the gospel with your neighbors? Would you pray that God would stir you for the specific names and faces that are in your life that cross your path? I'd ask, what is your mission? Do you move towards those who are under idols like Paul? I mean, who are you thinking of right now? Who has God put in your path at the gym or the coffee shop or at work or your neighborhood or a sibling or a child? Ask God to break your heart for them and ask God for boldness to initiate with them, to share the gospel. I mean, what's our message? It's the true story of the whole world. Are you gripped by it? Are you gripped by the reality of the resurrection and pressed upon by the reality of the resurrection? Do you believe in your bones that this is the story that we live by? And then would you be encouraged by this, that your reception will be mixed? I actually find a kind of strange encouragement from Paul's example, because I'm going to go out on a, on a limb and, and guess that Paul was probably the best the world's ever seen at this, and his reception is mixed. And that's kind of weirdly helpful to read, because it means you and I don't have to bear the burden of knocking it out of the park every time. Our reception will also be mixed. And can we be encouraged by Paul's example here? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would just ask if you could believe this story. What we claim to be the true story of the whole world. I feel certain that you have questions and I feel certain that you have doubts, but is there not something that strikes a nerve with you about the Christian story? I saw a video uh, a couple of weeks ago of this New Testament scholar. He's an Anglican guy. He was talking about a trip he took to this very city, to the city of Athens just a couple of years ago around Easter Sunday. He said that around midnight on Easter morning, he saw and he heard the city, the city issue the call, Christ is risen. And he said the mayor and the city council and the local government all responded with one voice, he is risen indeed. This scholar, speaking of Acts 17, he said, in this story, only a few people believe the gospel when Paul preached it, but between now and then, for some reason, word seems to have gotten out. Something has happened in the history of the world, and it changed the city. Could it be that God has indeed written himself into the story, that Jesus actually did raise from the dead, that Jesus is drawing people to himself, and all of the stories that we've heard about are true? Don't mistake God's patience for aloofness. In his kindness, he is inviting you to know him. If you want to talk more about this. I feel certain that whoever brought you or invited you this morning would love to unpack more of what's been said. Uh, I'll be out in the lobby after worship is over and would love to talk any more about this. I'm also a fan of El Jalisco. If you want to grab lunch, we can make that happen as well. The next few moments, we're going to have some space to just reflect on the things that have been said. We just ask the Holy Spirit to move in our midst. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we trust that you are big and you are small and you are far and you are near and you hear our prayers. And we come to you praying as those who love you and long to, to love you more. We pray that you would stir within us a jealousy for your namesake that would compel us to mission. We pray that you would identify people 
that you're calling us to move towards, that you would uh, allow us to overcome the fear of man and, and move towards these folks. We pray also for folks who are here this morning who are not Christians, who are not yet believers, who have never believed the good news that by faith alone we are saved. Jesus, would your spirit work in their hearts and open their eyes to see the reality of who you are. And Lord Jesus, as we conclude our time together this morning, we just pray that you would be honored in our singing and that you would lift our eyes just above our circumstances for a moment and give us a taste of your greatness and goodness. We pray this in your name.